You're listening to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. For this episode, host Sally Warhaft speaks with a giant of Australian journalism. Here's Sally in conversation with Mark Colvin. When uh, Mark Colvin accepted uh, our invitation to come and uh, make this happen this evening, uh, I was so thrilled uh, knowing that we could end a great year uh, with such a wonderful conversationalist uh, amongst his many other talents. And, uh, of course, uh, if Mark wasn't at work tonight, this room really would be empty. Uh, It is bang on time that I'm always glued to PM. Uh, It is the one essential radio program for me um, every single weeknight and uh, I just I, I can't remember life really or adult life without it without Mark's uh, voice and uh, to have you here tonight um, well of course hosting PM is just uh, what you've been doing for the past 20 years next year Oh, uh, I suppose so, yes. <laughs> I 90, think yes, it was 1997, you're right, uh, And uh, <laughs> time flies, doesn't it, when yeah. you're having fun? And uh, But, of course, he worked on Four Corners, Foreign Correspondent, Late Line, 7.30, and in its very first year, uh, Double J, uh, which, of course, became uh, Triple J, the youth, the youth station, and uh, helped really get that off the ground. He was the first presenter of probably my second favourite essential listening radio, which was uh, The World Today, and it was his idea, something that you brought back from uh, the BBC as um, a really terrific uh, listening if you have time in the middle of the day. He is now, though, uh, an author as well, and uh, Mark's written this book, Light and Shadow, Memoirs of a Spy's Son. And uh, in case I forget at the end, Embiggen Bookshop are here. Mark will be signing copies after this event. And uh, it is a beautiful and really substantial memoir. It is a class above uh, any memoir I've read this year, uh, certainly in Australia. Um, but I, I can't think of anything I've read that's come in from overseas either. It's different. Uh, it doesn't follow the normal uh, formulas of, uh, of a memoir, and I absolutely loved it. Please give him a big welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I want to start, Mark, by um, this... Idea that it is not a, a, a typical memoir, and that the, one of the things that really stood out to me about it was how discreet it is. There is not a, a single name dropping episode in this book, and you have talked to many, many people. Um, there's the the barest of bones about your personal life. Um, just what we think we might need to know, the essentials. And yet it is so intimate. And I was thinking about this and it reminded me of radio. Because radio, the reason I love the radio is because it's so intimate as well. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write a book with this kind of feel and shape. Well, I think it's not just about the radio to, to a degree, it's about the ABC, 
But it is about the radio too. I, I have done a lot of television, but I've not done a lot of uh, television in the studio. I, for quite a lot of my career, I had a, a degree of stage fright. There's a little discussion in, in the book about why that might have been, but uh, uh, the stage fright was to do with being looked at by a lot of people. I don't have it anymore. It just fell away about 15 or 20 years ago. And I can walk onto this stage and, and talk without the kind of fluttering in the stomach or fear of drying up or whatever that I used to have. I'd never had any state, stage fright on the radio because there is something about the intimacy. There's something about the radio where you can feel that you are, and it's one of the things that people use in training to a degree, you can feel that you're talking to one person. Mm. It's a good idea to think of your ideal listener or your best friend or your um, a family member or whatever and talk to them. So radio is about that intimacy of two people talking to each other, but not the intimacy of exposing your feelings or being up there as a as an image in people's head, I suppose. I'm... I'm what I'm trying to get at is that I, I'm not somebody by training or by instinct who wants to bear his soul uh, and certainly by training I'm somebody who's spent 40 something years as a bystander writing about other people and trying very hard not to give away too much about what I feel about that person or that situation. Not because I'm unwilling to share that, but because I think that doing that overcommits you. I don't want to be def defined by the judgments that I made in 1975, because if I had, if even when I was at Double J, and covering the dismissal, there's the potential there that you you would become defined for the rest of your career as that person who shouted and yelled about the dismissal. I, and so always I've tried to maintain the the principles of good journalism, which are to try and get the facts out. And if you're going to draw your conclusions, draw them at the very end of the process. And so I suppose... I was a little reluctant to write a book that was going to be all about me, me, me. You know, the old New Yorker cartoon. The Tell me more about... Uh, that's, that's enough about me, 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 me. Tell me, tell me about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> I didn't want to write that book. And then I hit on the idea of writing a book which was an intertwining of my career with that of my father and uh, as soon as I, that became as soon as it became clear to me that that was a path I could take then what you had was the possibility of writing a memoir which was also a piece of long form investigative journalism and being in daily journalism now I've been missing long form investigative journalism and there was a lot to find out um, yeah, it is you in a book when hearing you talk about it. and it's a book where you read it and I mean obviously we all know your voice um, but you you have the double pleasure of hearing Mark read it to you as you silently read it which is um, really something. Was it a pleasure to write to, to be in that process and writing a long 
Yes, it was. I, it, I, uh, I took time off. It had been a fairly difficult year. The ABC had been under massive attack, direct attack from Tony Abbott. And I got to a point where I thought, I've really, I've had this for 40-something years of cyclical attacks on the ABC by various governments of both stripes. And, uh, you know, notably, just in the last week, we've seen Paul Keating come out and have another thrash at us. So uh, there's, there's, uh, there's no, there's a totally bipartisan um, feeling about the ABC, I think, and, and long has been. And we've had cuts for years and years and years. And just I was just sick of it for a while. And, and I thought, well, I'll take some long service leave and take the time off to write a book. And my mother is um, going to be 91 in a week or two. She was coming up on 90 then. And because of being in dialysis for a long time, I'd, I'd been unable to see as much of her as I wanted to. And she lives out in the country with very bad Wi-Fi. And there's nothing like really bad Wi-Fi for writing a book. If you're looking for writing tips, go somewhere where you can't just log into the internet and spend all day on Twitter, which is my besetting sin, as some of you may know. Um, the book was launched by Nick Warner, the head of uh, ACES, the Australia's foreign intelligence uh, organisation. This is pretty rare. Uh, he's the only Australian spy who's allowed to sort of be identified as at the top of the, uh, the hierarchy there. How did you manage that? Uh, well... It occurred to me that there was a real symmetry there because um, his father was Dennis Warner, who was one of the most distinguished uh, foreign correspondents of his era. And uh, his father and my father knew each other. Uh, Dennis, as a journalist, I mean, he, he was... Uh, there's a great famous photograph of Dennis on the, on the beach at Saipan. He travelled with the uh, Americans through the Pacific during the war. And my dad was in uh, Saigon at the end of the war, and uh, they knew each other. I mean, my dad ended up, when he left SIS, he ended up uh, living in, in Hong Kong, working for the Chase Manhattan Bank, and they knew each other then in the Foreign Correspondence Club in Hong Kong, and which was a noted meeting place for journos and, and correspondents. And so he is the spy son of a journalist, and I'm the journalist son of a spy. So it was perfect in that sense. Mm. But also, I had met him in, in 1989 on a trip for Four Corners to Namibia, during which we followed a, a Namibian refugee back. She was one of the first people back after the South Africans withdrew from Namibia, during the South African withdrawal from Namibia, which had previously been called Southwest Africa and been a South African pr protectorate. And Nick was there uh, with the Foreign Affairs Department as the sort of uh, organising the Australian liaison. There was a, 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 an Australian army group of engineers there as well. And uh, he was very helpful. It was, a, it was quite difficult logistically for us. He, got, he, got, he helped us out a bit and I really liked him. And, and the thing about Nick is that he um, had a real sense of unlike a lot of journalists and spooks, he was, I'm sorry, unlike a lot of di diplomats and spooks, he was a straight diplomat at the time. He had a really good idea of how journalists work and he had a really good idea, because of his dad, I think, had a really good idea that, uh, that 
you're much better off trying to cooperate with journalists than you are trying to block them because if you try to block them, they'll just side-swerve around you. And Anyway, he was, and he's a really, really nice guy. So I wrote, wrote him an email. Um, uh, oh, the other thing was that he'd given a speech about his father, Dennis, at the Lowy Institute. So Michael Fullylove at the Lowy Institute gave me his email. I sent him an email, said, look, this is completely out of the blue, but uh, what about it? And uh, he said, oh, well, I'd have to... I'll have to read it. I'll have to make sure that uh, it doesn't, you know, breach any secrets which our British friends would not want breached. And ultimately, I'll have to get permission from Julie Bishop. So I sent him a, the, the the proofs, and he said, "I'm I'm off on a long flight to somewhere secret, and uh, <laughs> and I'll read it on the plane." And he came back, and he said that he really loved the book and would be happy to do it. And then he went to Julie Bishop and asked her for permission, and, and uh, she gave it. And presumably read it as well. Well, I don't know if Julie Bishop's read it. I've, I've heard no, no uh, reviews back from that quarter. I, um, I mean, it's a thread, and a really important uh, thread through the book is, is this relationship between espionage, spies, and journalists. And you describe it as, as two sides of the the same coin. Um, tell us a bit more, I mean, you, you make some, uh, obviously there's uh, the obvious observations that a journalist endeavours to get a big readership or listenership or viewership. You want as many people as possible um, knowing your byline. Uh, but a spy, it's uh, necessarily quite the opposite. But tell us some of the, I guess, deeper uh, things that you you've discovered in in thinking about this over a long period of time. Well, I, I just think that there's the old adage about about journalism, which is that you know real journalism is is about finding something that somebody doesn't want you to know. It, it also applies to spooks. And I, a few years ago, I would have said to you that we use completely different methods. <laughs> But uh, thanks to revelations about the news of the world in London, uh, I think there are members of my trade who have used some pretty awful methods. And, you know, what we know about... Uh, there's a guy called Maza Mahmood who was just sentenced to jail. He was supposed to be one of the good guys in the news of the world stable, and it's now come out that he used not only phone hacking but also techniques of entrapment and pretty close to blackmail. Um, so I think... This is not a this is not a clean profession, journalism either. I try to practice it as a clean profession, and and I've, uh, everything that I've ever done in terms of training other people and all the rest has been about trying to trying to maintain the integrity of journalism. But uh, in the end, what you find on the ground is that I mentioned earlier the Hong Kong Foreign Cor Correspondents Club. It was notorious in the in the Vietnam War that places like that in in Hong Kong in Bangkok and so forth were places where journalists and spies met and quite often were sort of debriefing each other, um, and that was sometimes a very unhealthy relationship, but was sometimes uh, a fairly reasonable kind of relationship. Uh, but it just depends on the, on the journal. There were there were people who that have been for a long time people who allowed themselves to be 
tools of the intelligence services. And then again, the relationship in Britain was so close that there were quite a lot of um, correspondents for British newspapers and so forth who were known to be and uh, or have been exposed since as having been uh, really MI6 all along. And obviously the, the best example of that is that when Kim Philby was found to... The, the story of Kim Philby begins with doubt and then goes on to the increasing certainty of MI5 that he was uh, a double agent, but MI6 was unable to be convinced about that. So in the end, they reached... And the reached, Prime Minister, wasn't it? Is well, yes, because he was taking the advice of MI6, and he went into... Harold, with Foreign Secretary, he was then. He was before he was Prime Minister. But he, Harold Macmillan went into the Parliament and said there was no evidence, whatever, that Philby was a double agent. And, and um, so... But what happened then was that, he, A, he'd been blown anyway, and, B, um, they felt that it was while there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute him, MI5 was not going to have him around anymore. So he was effectively out of the service. So he had been an, what they call an intelligence officer, which is an agent handler, and they turned him into an agent. Namely, they, there was a man called David Astor who owned the Observer newspaper in London, who had very close ties with the SIS, and they went to David Astor and said... Um, you need a new Beirut correspondent, Chummy, and his name's Kim Philby. <laughs> so he was the Beirut correspondent of the Observer. As an, so he was an agent of, of SIS, MI6, and uh, continued to do that for quite some time before a bloke called Nicholas Elliott, who was my father's boss at various times, went down, made a real botch of... Uh, an interrogation of him, and he uh, disappeared in the middle of the night and uh, hopped on a Russian freighter and ended up in Moscow. So, yeah, there was that... The, the relationship has been very tangled. Mm. Do you think... Um, does the life of, you know, your father's working life... Has it ever... Uh, I mean, I'm, I assume you're not a, an agent, Mark, or a yeah. double agent. Well, but, I would say you know, you'd be good I'm at a it. terrible, terrible... No, I'd be really bad. Would I'm you? a really bad liar. Okay. I'm a really bad liar. They probably all say yeah, that, yeah. don't you they? You can but, see all the signs. Yeah. Yeah. The sweat comes up on yeah. my upper lip and yeah. I can't hold the eye contact. Well, so. we could go back to this suddenly not getting nervous at 50, like, yeah, maybe, bang, you maybe know. I, but, maybe uh, I was turned. But does it ever... Uh, does it ever... Uh, can you see the appeal in it compared to the much more public work you've done where you end up having Tony Abbott and Paul Keating critiquing, you know, uh, the, the every move of your organisation, the, the quieter life of the, of the intelligence officer? Look, the, both, both uh, trades or professions, whatever you want to call them, uh, involve a degree of danger and adventure... And I think that's probably the attraction. If there's a sort of genetic attraction in the two things that binds me and my father, it's that. Dad, um, somebody said to me the other day, why do you think your father joined MI6? And I said, because uh, he was bored. And 
and it's, they, a lot of people sort of laughed, and, and I said, no, seriously, because what actually happened was that at the, towards the end of the war, he'd, he'd had a fairly conventional Royal Navy career, and what I've discovered in the book is that uh, round about the beginning of late 1944 or 45, he joined the Special Operations Executive. I think the Special Boat Service, but I've got no precise record of this. But I, I do have pretty strong evidence that he was running gunboats into uh, into Croatia in the first few months of um, 1945. Uh, this is the period which uh, forms the backdrop of the third volume of Evelyn War's Sword of Honor trilogy, because War and Randolph Churchill and Fitzroy MacLean were all in um, in, the, in Tito's headquarters with the resistance against Yugoslavia, uh, against the Nazis in Yugoslavia, and uh, Dad was apparently dropping agents in by sea from from um, uh, northern Italy, which by that time had been taken over by the the Brits and the Americans. And uh, then he went to Sri Lanka and it, it was part of the team that was being assembled by Earl Mountbatten to retake Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, and he was dropped into Saigon in about, uh, I think, May or June of uh, 1945 in a midget submarine. And then he was in South Vietnam running a network of agents against the Japanese occupation. And then he was, um, he actually took the, the Japanese surrender. He's a very young lieutenant receiving the samurai swords. And, um, and then he spent the next year living in, in Saigon. So it's a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's an extraordinary, I think a lot of those people who'd had good wars ended up feeling a bit bored by peace. And uh, so in, in, and then what complicated things further was that his, uh, he was, his eyes went. There was something that happened to his eyes and he was no longer able to be either a gunnery officer or a flags officer. And he was, if he could stay in the Navy, but he was gonna have to be a purser. Uh, and if you knew my dad, you'd know what a joke that was. He couldn't do, you know, money. Money just flowed through his hands. Really, uh, he wasn't. He wasn't set up to be an accountant. And so I think he was bored. And uh, when he, when he was somebody at a party said, "Do you want to come up and have a chat to us?" He jumped at it. Um, and meanwhile, of course, you know, you are born. You are a quiet child, it seems. Um, um, quite well-behaved and quiet child. A bit accident-prone, but... Uh, terribly accident-prone. Terribly accident-prone. Yeah. Um, your own uh, choice to, to become a journalist was quite accidental, really. And, in fact, there's a really curious scene in the book where you describe... You, you've come to Australia and... Uh, you're at the Dole office. You're at what, the Centrelink, whatever it used to be, the Commonwealth Employment <coughs> Service. And uh, you wait in a queue for hours and it's a horrible, dirty office and finally you get to the front of the queue and the, the woman says, <clears throat> oh, you've got a degree, you go upstairs. 
And so you walk upstairs and describe almost what it seems like a different world. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were meant to be some classless yeah. society back then, but actually all you had to have was a degree. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, the carpet was laid out and this guy who sounds very important in your life said, you know, talked to you and said, well, come back tomorrow and I'll... And he had three potential cadetships for you. Yeah. I mean, that is a... What a great guy uh, in your life. What an important... uh, the guy, you know, we don't we don't hear many important uh, CES moments, I suppose. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I and don't even know his name. Somebody did come up to me and say, oh, I used to work in that office. It was exactly as you described it. So that was that was good. Yeah, I mean, it, the two things amazed me. One was that, that, you know, and there you are. You, the, the ABC was was one of them. They, I think they all accepted you, but you chose no, two of them. No, the City Morning Herald had the good sense to turn me down. Right. <laughs> well, that worked out well for them, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, but the other was the, the, that sort of cla- that old class system, I guess, in, in Australia, a different version of it. Uh, there uh, were far fewer people with degrees. It's mm, got, that's mm, got to be remembered. Mm. There were pretty much no journalism schools. Somebody wrote, sent me an email the other day saying there was a journalism school. It was at um, the Canberra TAFE, I think. Um, it was, there was one in Canberra anyway. But I, don't, I actually don't think it had started turning out graduates. I didn't meet anybody who'd been to a journalism school for about a decade after that. So the path into journalism was was either sign up as a copy boy, and it was mostly copy boys rather than copy girls, uh, or, and th- this was another bit where I got lucky in a sense, that the ABC, for instance, had, for the first time, I, I was in the first intake of graduate trainees, graduate cadets, uh, because until then they'd been taking on people straight out of school, and... Um, and I, I know Peter, Peter Cave's a great friend of mine, but he's been quite frank in the past because he was he was in the the, the he'd come in th- two three years before, and he, he admits that he was extremely resentful because you know he'd done he's, he'd done nearly three years, and there there we came in, and we only had a year's cadetship, and so we were going to gra- graduate at the same time. Um, so that was that was a bit of luck that they were suddenly taking on graduates. I mean, it's all luck, really. Back then, now it's now it's just you know insanely difficult to get into anything. And and uh, speaking of class systems, I mean, I think the the whole question of in- internships brings up a whole lot of new class issues. I think what you've got is is a situation where people who can afford to put their kids. Uh, to 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 uh, give their kids an allowance and so forth, uh, you're much more likely to get an internship mm. than somebody who is uh, you know more financially strapped. It's not a it's not a it's not a good thing. It's much more of a trend in America. It's been much more of a trend in America and Britain than it has been here. But it's starting to kick in here too. It worries me because mm. you know journalism. Uh, Journalism back then was full of people who had far fewer qualifications, intellectual qualifications, but they were more prepared to sort of kick down doors, as it were. They were, uh, and I I don't, I mean, sorry, that's, uh, I don't, that brings up the image of the news of the world again to a degree, which I didn't mean to do. But there there was a certain 
solid practicality about the people who'd come up from being copy boys and learned the ropes, um, which I think we've lost a bit. I, I don't necessarily think that uh, journalism graduates are better journalists, uh, or at least I think it would be good if we still had a few people who joined the craft straight out of school. Or, Cadetships seem or to just, be a great loss, don't they? Yeah, yeah, or just came out of having done an arts degree just or a science degree. I don't necessarily think that you're going to be a better journalist for studying Lacan and Foucault for three years. Sorry. I'm Sorry sure to you, all you no, French I'm sure you don't. philosophers I, out there. <laughs> Um, how do you feel about uh, having been at the ABC your entire career? This is a big relationship in your life. It is a big relationship, but uh, I, it's one that... I mean, you did say that I've been at PM for 20 years and, and that's the exception that proves the general rule, which is that I've tried to stay out of the ABC in various ways for most of my career. Um, in other words, not be at headquarters... Um, so I did a year's training at ABC News, but then I was at Double J for three years, which was very much like being at a, in a completely different organisation. It was totally autonomous. It was like a sort of uh, anarchist collective at times. Um, it was all run by uh, weekly meetings, sometimes more frequent than weekly meetings, where... Everyone sat around on beanbags and shouted at each other. There were self-criticism sessions, more or less, and um, there was. But it was actually it was it was a lot of fun. I I don't want to make it sound like a um, a, a Maoist village in the Cultural Revolution. It was a, a hell of a lot more fun than that. Um, <laughs> and there was also a lot more weed. But uh, <laughs> but but I of course never inhaled. So. <laughs> Somebody, a friend of mine who worked in the floor above, said, was asked, um, he was working for a New South Wales minister uh, uh, who had also worked on the floor above, an ex-ABC person, and he, uh, Mark, formulated an answer, should Bob ever be asked whether he'd smoked dope? And Bob was going to say, well, I inhaled, but I never smoked. <laughs> because there was so much just rising up through the floorboards from, from Double J. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the answer is, you know, I did that and then I was, uh, then, then I was a foreign correspondent in London and, you, you, you know, you, you've got to get away from, from head office. And then I was uh, back briefly for a couple of years doing The World Today. And, again, Radio Current Affairs was kind of... Um, quite fairly separate from the rest of the organisation. Then I was Brussels correspondent. Then I was at Four Corners, which was very hived off from the rest of the organisation, partly for sort of security reasons. It was very important that nobody get hold of... nobody be able to get hold of Chris Masters' files on organised crime and so forth. The, the security... In th those days, security generally was a lot more lax, but security at Four Corners was quite tight. And in general... So, you know, then I was in London again. And, and in general, um, I think that I've sailed on, on a lot of little pirate ships rather than in a big fleet mm. in terms of my career at the ABC. And some of them have been real pirate ships. 
Double J really was, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, and I mean, it, interesting early learning experience for you too there because you you had to grapple with uh, serving a, a, a youth audience. Yeah. Um, but all the newsroom uh, ethics and yeah. balance and how how did you work that out and how has that stayed with you throughout your career that that sense of thinking that through that that it, the ABC is not one single entity uh, you, you know it's not it's not one building that's right and I think it was about the the word alternative was incredibly. Um, popular, fashionable in those days. So it was, it was a question of trying to find uh, alternative ways to do coverage and to do coverage of alternative subjects, which basically, at Double J, most of, the, most of it meant doing stuff that young people were interested, which other people weren't covering. I mean, there was an awful lot about, about uh, schools, for instance, the authoritarian nature of schools back in those days, uh, there was an awful lot about drugs, obviously. It was Drugs and sex were really big subjects. And one of the things that... Uh, and, and, and which, to a degree, which a, a, a young audience now would not understand at all. We, you just were not supposed to talk about sexual health, for instance. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to talk about... Uh, it was worse for women to talk about sex than it was for, for men, too. Um, that was, that was a, a big taboo, I think. Um, and so the one, one of the first documentaries that the, that the station did was called The Ins and Outs of Love, and it was just essentially a, uh, a mix of music and people talking about their sex lives in a very frank way, and it just outraged people, including the deputy general manager of the ABC, Clem Semler, um, who wanted the whole station shut down, as did Fred Nile. It's, it's amazing, you know, that you... Uh, I found myself writing about Fred Nile and thinking, hang on, he's still there. <laughs> he's still... And he's still influencing major votes in the upper house of... Oh, uh, he says that about you Parliament. too. I'm sure he does. <laughs> yeah. Was it, was it being on the ground as a foreign correspondent, though, that... Um, was the the most exciting work for you or or not you, you opened the book with a a story from iran and uh, uh being uh invited into the us compound where the us hostages uh were being kept after jimmy carter's failed uh attempt at releasing them and the, the these opening scenes of your book are like uh, it it's kind of game of thrones it's like a i mean it's it was it's really quite uh, horrific what you describe and and it's a great opening as i'm sure you know for a couple of reasons it sets the scene and reminds people like me that you were uh, on the ground at, at that time that, you know, you've been doing it a lot longer than I've been listening to uh, to the radio. Uh, but also you use it as a pivot. You, I'm not, I don't want to tell you, the audience, how the book ends, uh, but it's very, uh, very clever that the opening and the ending and the pivots of history that you talk about and being able to sometimes see in hindsight and sometimes you get a sense of feeling them as they're happening. And I'm wondering, is that stronger and was it 
um, more you as a journalist than the desk-bound uh, Mark Colvin of, of PM. Yeah, the I I think from a very early time I've because it's partly because I was you know a bit of luggage carried around the world as a child by by a diplomat slash spy. Uh, so I've always had a fairly global perspective. And I think once I got used to the fact that I was a journalist, once I realised that this wasn't something I was going to do for a few months and then drift away and do something else, uh, I think I, even at, at, when I was at Double J, I think I had my eyes set on being a foreign correspondent. Um, partly because certainly in those days, being a foreign correspondent was... Uh, a license to travel and go and see stuff and and um, tr try and find out what the world was like, try and find out place about what places were like that you'd never been to or places or what really happened in places that you had been to um, and it was a uh, it was also i mean i was i think young men in their twenties are pretty reckless I think everybody knows that the testosterone thing appalls me when I look back at the degree to which I would hurl myself in. I, I thought that I was a fairly careful correspondent, but I look back at myself and I, I am quite terrified by a few of the things that I did. Um, and I'm also quite terrified by a few, few of the things that I walked into um, and which then turned nasty. I mean, there, there are occasions in the book where exactly that happens. You walk into somewhere because you think it's completely safe, and then suddenly the whole thing shifts. Um, so, sorry, what was the question again? Well, it was a, a big question about, about doing that kind of work, being on the ground, but also yeah. um, to be there in those, those pivotal moments of history. Yeah, look, I think that what I think now... Um, is a, a, to a degree what I've always thought, which is that you don't actually get a good picture of the world unless you um, unless you have people who will go there and tell you what is actually happening. And I make a fairly passionate argument in the book for having lots of foreign correspondents, having lots of journalists. I think we're in a really dangerous time, not only for journalism, but for society, because I think we have a, a diminishing pool of people who are actually paid to go out there and look at stuff. Uh, and at the same time as you have this diminishing pool of those people, and it's a, a lot of the reason why that pool is diminishing is economic, it's expensive to get news. And at the same time, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper to have to get commentary. So that's been the result of the 24-hour news cycle, um, that you have more and more people... The, the Americans have that great word, bloviating, uh, which means spouting on, really, uh, about smaller and smaller numbers of facts. Um, and that's been a problem un until... That's been the central problem until recently. And I think the that the problem that we're now facing, and I think we're going through a massive shift, another massive shift, is that uh, the cheapest thing of all is just to make it up. Mm. Mm. So the, the problem of fake news and the so-called post-truth post society is something which I, I, you know, I, I finished writing this book in the middle of this year, 
And I didn't see that coming no. over the hill. I didn't see Donald Trump coming over the hill. But, you know, I look back on the book now and, and it is, it has a, a certain arc which e ends at a certain point and it describes an era. And I've got the feeling now that, you know, volume two is going to be describing how that era went from one thing to another. And I think it has just come to a, a shuddering halt and we're entering a new one. I don't know what that what that's going to be, but I keep thinking about WB Yeats. What rough beast, its hour come round at last, is slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. Mm. Well, that's uplifting, isn't it? That's, uh, <laughs> I, I, um... Or put it another way, there's a, a Scottish comedian called Frankie Boyle who says, um, <laughs> who said, I heard him the other day saying, look at his hair. It looks like the plug hole in an orangutan sanctuary. <laughs> uh, the, I think, I mean, the, yeah, the, 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 the fake news uh, has seemingly <clears throat> caught everybody uh, by surprise, even that uh, on its own. Uh, the media have had a very, very rough time in the past uh, couple of months. Very much so. Mm. Um, you... Uh, you quote a, a British politician, Dennis Healy, um, who talks about um, the hinterland, uh, that politicians um, should have a breadth of interests and activities outside of, of politics. And when I heard you talking about journalists, you know, that they'd be perhaps better with more BAs and general degrees and so on. And um, I think it's also... Or BSCs. I, or, yeah, I, I'm yeah, 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 no. No, but a broad... Um, a broader the training range. in how to think, I think, is, is how I think about it. It's, mm. uh, you know, I've got an arts degree, but it was really... I did the history of the English language and, and its literature at, 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 at Oxford. Oxford. yeah. At Oxford. But it is a... It, it uh, you know, I could have done philosophy, I could have done PPE or or, um, or history, um, or for that matter, one of the modern languages, but all of them are basically ways of training your brain to analyse stuff, to take things apart and put them together again. And I've, I've found um, that my English degree has done me no harm at all in terms of journalism because it, it's, it is, you know, when you've been through that system, particularly at Oxford, where, you, where there is a great deal of um, criticism of your, of your own work, and it's a very luxurious intellectual system where you go into a, a tutorial, read your essay out aloud, and your tutor and, and the other student who's in there with you then tear it apart and you have to defend yourself. Um, that is an extremely good training for mm. journalism particularly because the next week he reads, the other student reads his essay out. <laughs> you <laughs> and get then to go back. <laughs> but one way or another, you learn to, you know, you learn to edit, you learn, you, you learn a lot about your writing. And, and above all, um, Orwell talks about how writing, the, that really close relationship between writing and thinking, you, the, the, the um, uh, good, clear writing comes from good, clear thinking and uh, inextricably linked. And uh, that's what I'd like people to come into journalism with. It was enjoyable reading about your time at Oxford um, after your time at boarding school, which uh, is a, an account... Uh, I mean, the book... It, 
you, you, have to, you, you do give your reader a rest and pauses uh, before um, unexpected or, or, or brutal uh, occurrences, usually to do with the world, but in this case to do with you, where you were absolutely thrashed uh, in in your secondary boarding, prime well, eight to thirteen, between, yeah, eight it? and yeah. thirteen, yeah. Um, tell us a bit about about that experience, but also how it's also formed your your view of uh, of, of of the world and the abuse, particularly of children. Yeah, look, I I, I couldn't um, give you a better description of of um, the boarding school I was sent to than, than to get you to read Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall, which was written about a boarding school in the, in the English 1920s, complete with, you know, drunken masters and, and um, thrashings and all the, all the um, just appalling things that happen when you have largely unqualified people left in charge in, in complete power over very small people who have no way to fight back. And so what you learn from it is, is uh, a degree of... of um, it's, it's, a, it's the wrong sort of... It's resilience, but it's the wrong sort of resilience. Mm. It, it has a tendency to, to teach you to shut down and block out. Um, it has... Having said that, you know, I think there, there have been times, long periods in hospital and, and other privations that I've gone through where I, I think I've probably survived a bit better and more stoically because of them. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, recommend, you wouldn't know, if I had a time machine, it. I wouldn't go mm. back and do that mm. again. But, uh, yeah, there was a lot of really severe corporal punishment. It was really severe and, and um, uh, you know, lay it out in the book and what happened as a result of it. But the other thing that it does is, is induce a sort of form of Stockholm Syndrome. You know, it, 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 in, it acculturates you to the idea that, you're, that you mustn't tell anybody, anybody about this and that, that one of the reasons why you mustn't tell is anybody about this is because it's a good system. It must be a good system because they keep telling you that it's a good system and it creates a... When you're very small, it creates a uh, a, um, a block in your mind as to um, what's going on. And I, I was very lucky to be freed from it when I was 13. And uh, I don't know what I, if I'd gone to an equally horrible secondary school. I uh, don't know what, how I would have turned out. Luckily, I I went to an extremely liberal and for for the time very liberal and. Um, and uh, excellent school with very good teachers where there was no corporal punishment. Above all, there was no corporal punishment. But I think what it leaves you with in the end is... I was talking to Nick Davis about this, who, who exposed the News of the World uh, scandal and wrote Hack Attack. And Nick says that it was abuse in childhood. He thinks that that's what gave him his sense of injustice and the need to fight against injustice and um, to the need to fight for people, you know, small people who are in the power of bigger and more powerful people. I think there's, there's quite a lot of us out there who have that sense, who've been through similar mm -hmm. circumstances. It's funny, I, uh, a very, very old friend of mine who, who I work with at Double J 
um, said to me at the launch, you know, it's weird, isn't it? We've known each other 30, 40, 40 years. And I didn't realise you'd be, you know, I, I went through that, you went through that, and we never didn't talked about know. it. Mm. You know, mm. it's weird. Um, before we go to the audience uh, for questions, uh, uh, you, you only, there's less than two pages in your book about your health, and I, I think um, uh, uh, I'm most concerned to, to see that you're sitting here alive and, uh, and, and looking very well, but I can't pass up the opportunity to talk about um, being the recipient of a kidney donation, because I, I feel like you're, you're in a strange situation where you're very private, and you're, um, and like so many people with the chronic or ongoing illness, the reluctance to be defined by 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 yeah. that. Um, but obviously, to be the recipient of a, an organ donation is a a, a big big thing. It's um, something that's of great interest to me because my father was a kidney donor at the age of seventy three, a live donor, and he's now. 76 and um, probably feeling better than ever, actually. He, he loves the annual health check he gets yeah. for the rest of his life now. Since they give him a once-over, he, yeah. um, he never would have uh, got, but that was a, a donation to, to my younger stepbrother. Fantastic. And uh, so this is a process I've watched up close. And it's hard to have somebody uh, in your position uh, be sitting here in front of hundreds of people when we know that if we surveyed you on the way out, probably 99% of you would say you'd want to be uh, organ donors and probably by the time that moment came, it had whittled down to maybe 40 and then for other reasons, uh, things, things lower and lower. So I wonder how you... I think it's about three years now, isn't it, since you... Three and a half years, uh, yeah. How you reflect on it, on it now with time. Well, you're right. I didn't want to be defined by it. Um, I'm not, I didn't want to be defined by it in my first book. I think I will write about it in, my, in volume two. Hello, Louise. Um, <laughs> and I'm just, in my mind trying to construct to, to, to construct a, a structure for volume two. Uh, but I didn't want my first book to be about, um, you know, being the victim of chronic disease, chronic pain, chronic illness, all of that. Um, but there's a young playwright called Tommy Murphy who's writing a play, has written, is, is um, completing a play called uh, Mark Colvin's Kidney, which I, I find excruciatingly embarrassing. I think it's got its own Twitter handle it's too, really hasn't about, it? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, the Twitter handle appeared while I was under anaesthetic, by mm. the way. It's mm. nothing to do with me. Uh, I was under general anaesthetic for about 12 hours and it appeared about four, year, four hours in, I think. Um, so I can genuinely say that I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, look, um, it really should be, the play should be called Mary Ellen Fields' Kidney because it is going to be a play, much more a play about her. She, she was hacked by the news of the world, uh, uh, but she, the, one of the legal difficulties she has is that she wasn't hacked. Elle McPherson, whom she worked for, was hacked. And she was, was blamed. Elle McPherson's mm. voicemail that was hacked. Elle McPherson blamed her, uh, sent her to a um, 
to a drying out clinic, accused her of being an alcoholic. They, they kept her in for a week or so and, and said, you're not an alcoholic, you're not uh, anything, there's nothing wrong with you at all. I joke with her that she's the only person I know who's got a certificate that says, you're not an alcoholic. <laughs> That's quite a desirable piece of paper to have. <laughs> um, but uh, she, she uh, b because it was Elle's phone that was at, she has been unable to get, and because Elle McPherson has refused, even though it's absolutely clear that, uh, Elle, that Mary Ellen did nothing wrong, Elle McPherson has utterly refused to help in any way, including giving her access to the, the hacked voicemails, because Elle, Elle got one of the really early big settlements, and uh, there's something in that settlement, and we don't know what. So she was deeply distrustful of the media, obviously, and um, she, I tried to get an interview with her and she took advice and eventually um, decided to talk, talk to me and then we became friends. We found that we had a lot of, a lot of uh, interests in common in terms of literature and art and things like that and we became sort of pen friends as we used to call it in the old days, but it's email and Skype and FaceTime now. And we talked a lot, and I interviewed her a few times, and then she came to Australia, and uh, she was very... Uh, she, she's quite superstitious in her own way. I'm not. Uh, but she had, become, she had become convinced that she could give me a kidney. And I, not only am I not so superstitious usually, but I'm, I was also very, very reluctant to have anybody go under the knife for me. Uh, but she was very persistent and um, eventually said, well, she said, look, it can't do any harm. Let's just have the, the tissue matching. And we went for the, because we already knew that this is how it first came up. I was talking, I was talking to her about my blood group, which is a rhesus negative and hers was the same. So she said, well, and she went on chipping away. And eventually I said, okay, we'll do the tissue matching. And the tissue matching came out so close that it was really uncanny. The doctor said, you, you may even be related somewhere down, back down the line that you don't know. And so uh, eventually I said, OK, let's do that, and uh, let's do it, and, and we did it. And, and um, you know, here I am three and a half years later. But uh, the, so Tommy's play is going to be, I think, about that kind of flipping over of, of, the, of the, the really... Truly, uh, I think the word evil is not inappropriate in the circumstances, the evil side of, of journalism, journalism at its worst. But then the relationship between somebody who had suffered the worst of that and it's, it's somebody... It's not anybody's kidney, is it? It's no. somebody that you have this deep uh, No, and the, to... what you said about, about your father reminded me too that Mary Ellen had a sister um, who died in a car crash. And her estranged, the sister's estranged husband, who hadn't been near her for two years, uh, but they weren't divorced, came to the bedside and refused permission for, mm. for organ donation. And I think that's one of the things that drives Mary Ellen. Mm. I think she, fe she felt the rest of the family were completely on board. But I think she always felt terrible about that. Mm. And she feels that she was able to give some kind of 
restitution in some way, and I'm the beneficiary of that. Well, it's a, a wonderful thing, and uh, it's always a wonderful thing. And in my family, it's been a, a life-saving and wonderful thing. And, and my observation of it, Mark, is that it's the um, the recipient. It's a much bigger deal, in fact, for the person who's receiving this than oh, it tends huge. to be for the person. It's huge. Uh, I in, mean, this is for kidney donors, obviously. It's a, dialysis you know, yeah. is, yeah, is a rotten life. Mm, it's miserable. a rotten life. As I say, you know, I went th three years hardly able to see my own mother because she lives down near Yass, and and um, you and I was doing dialysis every day, two days, day and a half, and and then I went down for Christmas a couple of years in a row because I was able to get relief dialysis near where she was, and then the third year I I had to miss out on on that because there was no relief dialysis mm. available because we we are approaching a, a a definite dialysis crisis. There aren't enough machines mm. and there are more and more people with diseases like diabetes that lead to dialysis. So something that I'm very, very strong on is not just um, proselytizing for um, donation itself, but for just whether you are for it or against it, have the conversation. Mm. Make sure everybody in your family knows what you want. If it's no, then fine. But at least you've had the conversation and you don't have that thing, that awful thing at the bedside where people are going, well, I don't think he would have wanted that. I don't think she would have wanted that, whatever. Um, no, the, we, we had the conversation. This was very clearly the wish of the person. And then you go ahead on that basis. Mm. Um, if you'd like to ask Mark a question, put your hand up, please, and an usher will... Bring you a, a microphone. Mark, um, are you uh, retired now from the ABC or...? Uh... No, I'd, I'd be on air tonight if, mm. if, if, if right. I wasn't here. He'll be back on tomorrow I, I night. Present, I pre present PM every night. Yes. Uh, so you're somewhat constrained in offering any views about current ABC policy, I would imagine. I'm not as constrained as some people. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll press well, on. Try me, you know. Uh, well, I... You appear on both Radio National and local radio, don't you? Yeah. I am so disturbed about <clears throat> what is being proposed to um, the future of Radio National um, and also concerned about Jonathan Green um, to replace him with Tom Switzer. And I wonder... Um, the only new thing that seems to be of significance is that we've got an ex-Google manager now running the ABC... And um, to me, Radio National is, um, if not the jewel in the crown, it's one of them that gives us intellectual material and makes us think. And um, they're talking about taking it off the air and turning it into podcasts, which seems extraordinary. Would you like to comment on any of that? Yeah, up to a point. <laughs> um, I work for Radio News and Current Affairs. I don't work for Radio National. And and I, I'm not saying that to run away from the situation. It's, I'm saying that because I don't know. I haven't been at the meetings. I haven't been at the, the big group meetings. I haven't heard from Radio National management. I've obviously heard stuff at second hand. I, too, uh, you know, listen to a, a lot of... Radio National content. I'm. I like podcasts, but I also 
absolutely see the um, the uh, value of what's now called linear radio. It used to be just radio. Um, and I worry very much that if they shift the entire thing to digital, which is one of the things that's on, that's been floated. Again, I'm I've not. This is not inside knowledge, but one of the things that's been floated is that ultimately it will all go digital. I mentioned earlier my mum out in the country with very bad Wi-Fi, and certainly there's. I mean, here you can listen to digital radio on a digital radio. In the country, you have to listen either by paying large sums for your 4G or on the Wi-Fi. Well, the Wi-Fi at my mum's place is shocking, and it's 25 miles, 25 minutes drive from Canberra and 25 minutes drive from Yass. It's not exactly, you know, um, Dimboola uh, or, um, you know, it's, it's not back of Burke by any means. And uh, so I, I worry that people will lose some access if that were to happen, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, I, d I do think that, in general, people tend to talk about, oh, you know, the, you know there, are, there are meetings you go to where people say, oh, we've got to shift more into podcasts, and, and then you look at the figures for AM, The World Today, and PM, and the podcasts of AM, The World Today and PM are doing really, really well. And you say to yourself, well, or you say to them, to their faces, um, well, what do you think those podcasts are? They were radio programs. I know people who either listen direct online in London or Washington or wherever to our programs or download them as podcasts and listen to them afterwards. But I do think that uh, radio as such is important and I think that it is one of the media where uh, there have been um, repeated forecasts of its demise. It started in 1950 whatever with the arrival of television. Radio will be dead, you know, but radio lives on, it keeps on living on because it's the, it's the, it's the medium that you can listen to while you're cooking dinner or driving home. Obviously a lot of people listen to us driving home. And again, if you're if you've uh, if you haven't got um, if you're driving from Canberra to Yass on your commute home, how are you going to listen to PM? I worry about that, but I don't know. Again, I'm I am not saying to you that this is what they're going to do because I don't know what they're going to do. But I'm I'm obviously as worried as anybody else. Um, I just wondered, your father being a spy, were you actually aware of that when you were growing up and did it um, affect your impact on your life directly? I, I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't uh, officially or fully aware of it until I was 25 when I went to stay with him and he was in Philby's old job, actually, um, working uh, as the senior SIS representative in Washington, which meant... meant spending a lot of time at Langley. This wonderful thing in Washington, when, you, when you've grown up in that British system where they denied, they would neither comment, they would neither confirm nor deny that um, MI6 even existed until I think 1985 or 86, something like that. And then you go to Washington and you're driving around the Beltway and there's this huge sign that says, CIA headquarters, Langley, Virginia. <laughs> and he... 
he spent a lot of time there. He was the liaison between the CIA and, and SIS. So I was going to stay with him, and he, he told me that, and sort of swore me to, you know, swore me to seek lifetime of secrecy, which has fortunately been lifted since. Um, because I was going to be staying with him, and I was going to be meeting, there were some SIS people coming through, I was going to be meeting them, they'd be at dinner parties and so forth, and I, I had to shut up about it. But until then, I'd had some suspicions. But the, the big re, the, a lot of spook experts had said to me, no, he can't be a, he can't be MI6 because he has been an ambassador. He was ambassador in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. And the, one of the sort of research breakthroughs that I found in writing the book is that it is now known that the embassy in Mongolia is the one big exception to that because it was set up back in the late 50s or early 60s. The embassy was set up on the suggestion of the uh, SIS and it was always a co-funded station, co-funded by the Foreign Office, as it was then called, and SIS. And it was the, its most important function was as a GCHQ listening station, an electronic listening station, for um, signals between uh, Moscow and, well, between the Soviet Union as it was then and China. And um, so because he was had been an, an ambassador, I assumed that he couldn't be a, a spook. But, I, but then again, my sister and I had always sort of questioned that because there were things, there, were, there was always a lot that was a bit suspicious, but you weren't quite sure. And then eventually, just about six months before he told me, my mother gave, me the, gave us the bare bones of the fact that, he, yes, he was MI6. Uh, another media that people are discussing the potential demise of is Twitter. I'm wondering um, uh, if you think oh, Twitter is worth... No. Is Twitter worth saving? And if so, can you convince my mother, who's sitting down the front, why it would be worth saving? <laughs> well, I discovered Twitter in 2009, and I, before that I had thought, um, just the name is rather silly, and I'd been resistant to it. The name seemed rather silly. And then I thought, oh, it's only 140 characters. And then, then I discovered that, it is actually like a lot of things on the internet. It is pretty much what you want it to be. I think Douglas Adams said the internet is neither good or bad. It's just humanity. Um, and I think that's true of, of Twitter as well. Uh, and the, th the key thing that I discovered about Twitter was that the 140 characters didn't have to limit you because of linking. And uh, then they gradually refined the linking so that uh, you could so that long links would take up fewer characters in your uh, out of your 140, so you could say a bit more and link to articles. And so I run my Twitter feed very much as almost as if it were a news and and commentary service, uh, almost like an old newswire or something like that. Other people do. Um, other things like there's a wonderful Frenchman called Jean Philippe Tonac, who is at in the mood for TW in the mood for who just um, tweets um, photographs, paintings, extraordinary little gifts which he has taken. He's either made a Magritte or something into a little gif, um, or he's taken a little tiny bit of. 
Jean-Paul Belmondo doing something in a film and turned that into a little three-second gif or just, just a beautiful, beautiful feed. And so I have a lot of serious stuff in my feed. I have a lot of comedians in my, in my feed because I like uh, the way that comedians try out their one-liners on Twitter. I have a lot of art and, and stuff about literature on my feed. Yeah, the, I follow about two or 3,000 people, and it just zooms through. But you can, you can just stop it and find really interesting stuff. And um, I also think that I have conducted my Twitter feed in a fairly civil way. And I, I, I try to be extremely polite to people, even if they're extremely rude to me. And that seems to be the best way to deal with trolls and make them go away. I'm really pleased that they brought in the mute function because it means that you can effectively block people that they don't, but they don't know you're, that they're blocked. I do occasionally block people if they're either rude or racist, a few things like that. Um, I, I, but I do. I mean, I think one of the things you're alluding to is that they've had a really big problem of dealing with trolls. I'm very glad. I'm, I'm very lucky in being a male on Twitter, I think it's much worse for women. And I know women who, whose Twitter handles imply that they're men precisely because of that. And, and they've tried, tried it both ways and, um, and found, you know, it's, it's quite easy. It's quite an easy experiment to do. You can, you can be a male or a female on Twitter and, and tweet the same things and find yourself getting far more abuse as a woman, and I think Twitter's been very slow to deal with some of that stuff. It's okay, though, Mark, because Melania Trump's going to sort it all out. Oh, us. yeah. Mm. That's it. It's great that the Trump family is going to stop online bullying. Yeah. It's yeah. wonderful, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's just one of those wonderful, logical things, like saying that there are three million illegal aliens Votes. voted mm. so that there should not be a recount. Mm. I'm still trying to work that one out. Mm. Been trying to work that one out for the last 24 hours. <laughs> uh, we have to wind it up. There are so many other things I wanted to ask you about, but uh, uh, I, I encourage everybody to buy this. And if you buy it tonight, you'll get a an autograph. And I'm sure Mark will put his Twitter handle in the pages there for you too, <laughs> uh, so you can join uh, what's been a seriously thought out endeavour. Your your Twitter uh, life and very important to your work too, obviously. It's just been joyful. Thank you so much, Mark Colvin. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. So ends the fifth year of the Fifth Estate series here at the Wheeler Centre. Check out the archives at wheelercentre.com and leave us a review on iTunes or tweet us at Wheeler Centre. We're always interested in hearing your thoughts. And we'll be back soon. Until then, thank you for listening and take good care.